uh, because I was, I, I've been thinking through it and, and thinking about the wonder of the Christmas story. There's so much that we could focus on, but I feel like um, we're going we're gonna to start off here in Galatians 4.4, and I believe this is a word that God wants us to hear. Uh, the title of the message is, In the Fullness of Time. And I would like to ask, please, if you would stand as we read from Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5. The Word of God says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Again, we are talking today about the fullness of time. Would you pray with me, please? Lord God, we can have fun and... uh, We have fun reading your word and studying what you have for us. God, the fun is nothing unless you're actually speaking to us. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us through the pages of your word this morning as we read your scriptures. I pray, Lord, that you'd help me to preach simply and efficiently and effectively so that we can all hear from you today. Lord, we pray that you would anoint our ears to hear everything that you have to say to us today. Anoint our minds to comprehend it and anoint our hearts to receive the encouragement, maybe even the admonition that you have for us today. And we'll give you glory every step of the way. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you're seated. I have good news for you today. And that is that God is in control. Are you thankful for that? God is in control. Yes, praise God. But a lot of times we kind of, we we think that he's in control. And I couldn't have chosen the songs that were sung this morning better myself. Praise God for kind of going along with this theme because God is moving, but sometimes we don't see that he's moving, right? Right? And in fact, I've talked to some of you that you're going through stuff right now and you trust in God and you believe in God, but he's not moving as quickly as you would like him to. He's not doing what you would want him to do. And so it's by faith that we say, yes, I believe that you're moving. Even though I don't see it, you're working. And so we ask sometimes, though, in our humanity, And I don't think it's a bad thing, but we ask, how long, oh Lord? How long do I have to put up with this physical condition before you heal me? How long, oh Lord, do I have to put up with this anxiety that has just been overwhelming me and I'm trying to do everything I can to take in your word and to allow your Holy Spirit to move and to take this away and yet still I'm feeling that anxiety? How long do I have to mourn and feel this deep loss of this person that I love so much that's no longer with me? How long, O Lord, until you finally uh, provide me with a job, with some steady income so that I can provide for my household? And we go on and on with the needs that we have in this fallen world. And we wonder, how long, O Lord? Where I find encouragement at this time of year is that Israel was asking these same kinds of questions for many years. 
as I was reading through the Christmas story, trying to think where would God want us to lean upon this morning, I didn't really get any further than Matthew chapter 1. You don't always hear these verses as a text for preaching. We're going to read quite a few verses here, Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, giving the uh, ASL here, a, a little bit of difficulty to catch up here, I think. <laughs> Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportion to Babylon. And after the deportion to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And you say, Pastor, why in the world are you reading through the genealogy of Jesus on a Sunday morning when we have other things that we could be doing? There's other scriptures to be reading from. There's a point to all of this. Because, you see, throughout these, uh, this listing of the generations, what we see is a God who's at work, sometimes obviously, and sometimes behind the scenes. You see, you could say the Christmas story starts all the way back in Genesis, where God promises to Eve that her seed would crush the head of the serpent, although the serpent would bruise his heel. So we have the first prediction of the Messiah all the way back in Genesis 3 and yet thousands of years before the Messiah actually appears. When I look through this genealogy, I see that God is able to move regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the situation. You see, there's a lot of times in our lives where we think, I've really messed things up and I know God wanted this but because of these choices that I made, there's no possible way that he could actually be doing what he wanted to do. I've blown it. He's surely moved on to somebody else. 
He's got a different plan now. You ever feel that way? I have. And yet God moves through it all. It's really hard to stop his plans. That's what I've found out. God isn't hindered by what we might be consider what what me excuse me. He's not hindered by what we might consider mistakes. We look through this genealogy, we see all kinds of sins, sinners, mistakes, and yet all the way through God is using these people to bring about the birth of our Messiah. You see Isaac who was the promised son of Abraham, but when we see Isaac, we remember that Abraham jumped the gun and tried to do things on his own with Ishmael. We see Jacob. Well, Jacob was the deceiver who deceived Esau for his birthright. We see Judah. Judah wasn't the firstborn of Jacob. Before him was Reuben and Simeon. Joseph was the favored son, and yet Judah is the one who is in the line of Jesus. Tamar is named. You can go to Genesis 38 to see the scandalous story that happened there. Rahab isn't even an Israelite, and yet she gets to be in the genealogy of Jesus. You've got Ruth, again, not an Israelite, and yet she finds her way in the genealogy of Israel's Savior. You've got David, who wasn't even the first king over Israel. Saul was the first king, and yet Saul failed God, and so then God found someone who's, uh, who was a man after his own heart. And of course, David himself was flawed. We know that. Solomon is mentioned in the line of Jesus Christ, in the lineage of Jesus Christ, and yet Solomon wasn't the firstborn of David's sons. He was number 10 and yet he became king after David did. And of course, we know that Solomon was born under scandalous uh, circumstances, or at least his, his mother, well, we're not going to get into that story because otherwise I could, I could be here for a while. You've got numerous wicked kings that are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. These are not a bunch of just saintly kinds of people who trusted in God every day of their life. The Babylonian exile is specifically mentioned, and then, so then the readers would be reminded that Israel, the chosen nation, the chosen race, the race that God was their king, that God was taking care of them, and they rebelled against him so much that God caused them to be exiled to another land, and the temple was ransacked. Throughout all of this, we see that God has a plan. You see, humankind has a plan. Men and women have a plan. You have a plan for your life. I have a plan for my life. Sometimes our plans don't really work out the way that they should or the way that we think they should. But here's the good news. God also has a plan. And he's making sure that his plan is fulfilled in your life. Because he cares about you and he loves you and he knows what's best, even when we think that we do, God's ultimate purposes will be realized. Now, over the years, the Israelites had this common prayer that they prayed. How long, O Lord? as they waited for a Messiah, especially after they went into Babylonian captivity and then, and then they uh, suffered through a series of nations that had uh, authority over them. And they said, how long, O Lord? 
How long must we wait for your Messiah? How long until you fulfill your promises? Verse 21, which we didn't read, but we find out that Mary is to have a son. Pastor preached about this last week, and his name was to be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And we saw last week how the name Jesus literally means the Lord saves or the Lord is my salvation. When the time had fully come, God sent his son to earth. It's interesting when you read through the Bible. For us, it's as easy as turning one page after another. And we'll get to the end of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. And we get to the very last couple of verses of Malachi. And the last couple of verses in Malachi look forward to when God is going to send his prophet, Elijah, and he's going to prepare the way. And then we just turn the next page, and there we are into Matthew, and we start reading about that prophet, uh, in short order, who would be John the Baptist. But for the Israelites, you're talking 400 years from the time that Malachi was written to the time that Jesus burst on the scene. 400 years. Can you imagine it? I mean, our country has only been in existence for, what, 200, I don't know, I didn't figure out the math, to almost 250, or about 250, almost 250 years. 400 years. 400 years without any prophetic words being written down for Scripture. 400 years without a notable prophet. 400 years without any real salvation from oppressive governments. 400 years of crying out to God. 400 years of reading about your country's mistakes and how you've turned your back on God and how if you repent that he will uh, forgive you and he will uh, 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 rescue you. 400 years of reading in the scriptures through the judges and seeing how time and again the nation turned against God and yet when they turned back to him and cried out for a deliverer, God gave one to them. But 400 years they're waiting for a Messiah and they're saying, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Theologians call those 400 years the silent years. Jews where the Jews didn't have any prophetic word, where no scripture was being written. But those 400 years between Malachi and Matthew were anything but silent. I want to go over the history very quickly. Uh, the Babylonian Empire took over Judah in 586 B.C., and we see that in the scriptures, so that's not necessarily, uh, that didn't happen in the intervening time. But as the Old Testament is finished, the Persian government uh, has taken over from the Babylonians. Judah ceases to be an independent nation at this time. And so Judah or uh, Babylon is in control from 586 to about 450. The Persians conquer Babylon and they remain in control from about 450 to 330 BC. And then in these intervening years, the Greeks conquer the Persians in 330, Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great had plans for the Greek culture and the Greek language to overtake the world. It's what we call Hellenization. All of the nations that Alexander the Great conquered 
he Hellenized or he uh, enforced the Greek language and the Greek culture on those nations. After Alexander the Great's death, his kingdom was split into three different generals who took leadership. The Ptolemies in Egypt were considerate of the Jewish religion while they were in control. But then the Seleucids took over for the Ptolemies and uh, that was about 198 B.C. And Antiochus IV attempted to consolidate and to radically Hellenize the empire. And so during his rule, he prohibited central elements of Jewish practice. He wouldn't let them uh, uh, perform sacrifices. He didn't want them to meet in their uh, gatherings to read the Torah. He attempted to destroy all the copies of the Torah, as a matter of fact. He required that offerings would be made to Zeus. And he erected a statue of Zeus and sacrificed a pig in the Jerusalem temple during that time. That was about all that some Israelites could handle. And so Mattathias and his five sons revolted. It's a 24-year revolt but we know him as the Maccabean Revolt, named after one of Mattathias' sons. In 164 B.C., they purified the temple. They pushed back the Seleucids, and they had a measure of control over their own nation. That time was marked when they took back the temple and purified the temple. That holiday is what we now know as Hanukkah, what the Jews had just uh, finished uh, celebrating all around the world. And Judah became independent until about 63 B.C. when Rome took over. During that time when the uh, Jews were somewhat independent, we call that the Hasmonean dynasty. That's when the family of Mattathias governed over the nation. And uh, after the last son of Mattathias died, the, uh, Israel became very Hellenistic at that point. Pharisees were persecuted. When the Romans took over in 63 B.C., General Pompey took Jerusalem after a three-month siege of the temple area. He massacred the priests in performance of their duties. While they were performing their duties, he massacred the priests. And then he entered into the most holy place, which was something that just was not done for a Gentile. And the Israelites, under this Roman rule, are asking, How long, O Lord? How long until we finally get to see your promised Messiah. But we know what they didn't necessarily know, and that is that God had a plan, and God was working that plan out. And in his perfect timing, he would see its fruition. One of the things I love about Christmas is the anticipation of it all. Sometimes I drive my family a little bit nuts, I think, because I'm not as anxious to open up the gifts because the longer we can put off opening up the gifts, the more excited we get and the more perfect it gets when you actually open up the gifts, you know. But there was a time when I was a kid that I wanted to know right away. And I remember one Christmas snooping around while mom and dad weren't home a couple of weeks before the holiday and we found in their closet... <laughs> in their bedroom where we were never supposed to go in their bedroom. Sorry, Mom and Dad, if you're watching this, and sorry, Art, for ratting you out. <laughs> we found some of the toys that we were going to get for Christmas, and at, at first we were so excited. It's like, 
oh, look at this stuff. You know, this is some of the stuff we've been asking for. But then the thing is, when Christmas actually came, the time to unwrap the presents, it was still exciting, but it wasn't the same, you know? Because it wasn't the perfect timing. We, we jumped the gun. The perfect timing would have been to wait until Christmas Day to open up those gifts. And then we could have really been excited and we could have played with them right away. But finding out what they were two weeks early didn't do us any favors. Now we just knew we had these toys that we couldn't play with and we just had to wait until Christmas Day. And then underneath those wrappings, we knew what some of those gifts were and it just wasn't as much fun. You see, there's a certain timing to making things perfect. God has a certain timing and we would do well to trust in his timing and to trust in his plan. Because during those 400 years, what we call the silent years, where God wasn't moving, where there was no word from God, where God had forgotten all about Israel, and we're just asking, how long, O Lord? God was working some awesome things behind the scenes to make sure that the gospel would be able to be spread throughout the whole world. And it's really amazing when you think of it. What are some of the benefits? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> One of those was the Septuagint. Now, you might not know what the Septuagint is. The Septuagint, uh, it, it derives from the word 70. And legend has it that in the year 250 B.C., 72 scholars translated the Old Testament in 72 days. And so from the Latin word for 70, we get the Septuagint. And so the scriptures that had been written in Hebrew were now being translated into a language that the Jews could understand as the culture was being Hellenized and they were learning more of the Greek language and the Hebrew language was being outlawed by the government. Now, you say, why is that? What, what does that matter? Well, what's the rest of the world speaking at this time? Greek. And so now, as the missionaries, Paul and Barnabas and others, would go out into all these different places all around the world, they could take the scriptures with them and they could present the scriptures in a language that was tailor-made, as ready to be read by those people that they spoke to. And so the gospel, the good news, could be spread around. This Septuagint quickly had become the Bible for the Jews outside of Palestine. There's another benefit that happened, and that was what we call the diaspora, which means the dispersion. And it accelerated during these years when the Jews were scattered throughout the whole world. Uh, and it happened, it started with the Babylonian exile. And as the Babylonians took the Jews out of Israel, they became scattered throughout the Babylonian kingdom to the point when, where the, when, when the Israelites were allowed to go back to their homeland, many of them had become comfortable in their foreign land and they just stayed there. And so now all of a sudden you've got Jews all around the world, all around the known world. The, uh, a, a contemporary writer said that Jews filled every land and sea during that time. They were cut off from the temple because they're miles and miles away from the temple, and so they weren't able to provide the, to offer the sacrifices. And so what they did was they concentrated on what they could do during that exile, and that is they concentrated on the Torah and learning what the Bible had to say, and they built synagogues so that they could meet together and worship in different places, and they wouldn't have to just come to the temple to worship Almighty God. 
The early church missionaries began their ministries among the diaspora. Every time we read that Paul went to a new place, he looked for a synagogue. He looked for the Jews where they're already gathered together, where they already had an understanding of the Messiah, and he could go to that synagogue and he could preach about Jesus as a Savior. So we start to see where God is working during these 400 years. During this uh, time, they had been surrounded by pagan worship. Their faith was threatened with extinction during the exile, and so the Israelites turned their focus from what they had lost to what they had retained. They focused on the law, the Torah, and they focused on holiness and prayer, seeking after God, and they focused on the fact that they were God's chosen people. And suddenly, Judaism becomes a faith that can be practiced wherever the Torah can be carried. So you see what God is doing. You see how he's moving behind the scenes. But that's not the end of it. When the Romans came in, they did all kinds of favor for the Gospels. Because when the Roman Empire took over the world as we knew it, there was relative peace around the world. In fact, when Jesus was born, as one of the very few times when there's no mention of any major conflicts going on anywhere in the world because the Romans had brought a type of peace on earth at that time. So because the world was mostly at peace, travel could happen very easily. And in fact, travel was encouraged by the famed Roman roads that the Roman government placed all around the empire. So now suddenly travel could be done much more easily, much more quickly, much more safely. In fact, the Roman roads made it a point to try to make it from point A to point B as quickly as possible, straight line no matter the cost. And so travel could be done very, very quickly. And so now you can see how the gospel could be uh, proliferated all around the world with ease, much more quickly than it ever could before. And not only that, but the Romans brought with them an openness to all religions. The Romans were fine with you worshiping whatever God you wanted to worship as long as you worship their gods. And that did end up causing a little bit of trouble. But uh, they didn't care if Israel wanted to worship their God, the God of their fathers. That was all fine and good, as long as they were good citizens. And so we start to see that God is working behind the scenes. But, of course, Israel can't see this. And so they ask, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Days turn into years. Years turn into decades. Decades turn into generations. And yet we still ask, God, when are you going to move on our behalf? When are you going to answer your, prom- your, your call? When are you going to fulfill your promises? But when the fullness of time had come, God f- sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. If there's one message I want you to take with you today, it's that God has got it all under control. And that in God's timing, you will see his hand at work in your life. Many times, we don't see his hand working until we're looking back, right? We look back and we see, ah, oh, that's what God was doing all this time. 
I want to read from Ephesians chapter 1 because the Bible speaks a little bit more of this about how God is moving in his timing. What did God hope to accomplish when he sent his son? Well, Ephesians chapter 1 shows us, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. See, God is working behind the scenes this whole time to bring about his grand plan. And we see that his grand plan involves, first of all, redemption through Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that redemption is found through his blood. This is the fundamental idea of redemption. Redemption is the idea of setting a person or a thing free that had been in bondage or had come to belong to another. And so, through his blood, the Bible tells us, we have redemption. Hebrews 9.22 reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So how can we think of Christmas without thinking of Calvary and what Jesus has done for us? His blood means that our redemption was a costly price. But not only was it the price of our redemption, it was the means of our redemption. Jesus truly was born to die. And for that, we give him praise. And for that, we celebrate Christmas. Not just that he's a baby born in a manger, but that he was our Savior, bleeding and dying on the cross. He was giving us forgiveness for our sins. This is important for us to remember because there's a growing number of Christians in our culture, professed Christians, perhaps I should say, who don't believe that people are sinful, who don't believe that people are in need. But the Bible says just the opposite. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, uh, there's none righteous, not even one. Romans 3, 23 says, all have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. Sin puts us in bondage, puts us in bondage, spirit, soul, and body. And we need to be redeemed, spirit, soul, and body. And so the blood of Jesus cleanses us. And his forgiveness brings our freedom. The redemption through Jesus Christ is through his blood and it provides forgiveness of sins. But it is provided through the riches, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. I love that phrase. I love that phrase. The Bible says in uh, verse 9 that he's making known to us the mystery of his will. That word mystery, the Greek word is mysterion. And it doesn't mean a mystery like we might think. It's not about something that's hidden. It's more about something that's to be revealed. It's something that's to be disclosed. It's something that 
we didn't catch on to at first, but now God is revealing himself to us. He's revealing his plan to us. You might be in the mystery right now where you don't know what God is doing, but the day will come either on this earth uh, or in the new heavens and the new earth when God will reveal his purpose for you. Because our God is in the business of revelation. The Bible talks about his will, his purpose. It's to set forth as a plan. Uh, We have this idea that God is just this God that wants to hide all the time. We act like he's just some mystery. He's some enigma wrapped in a riddle that we just can't figure out. He's way up there. And he's just almost playing games with us, almost toying with us. And oh, if we could just somehow maybe partially see who God is. That's not the God that we serve. The God of the Bible is a God of revelation. He's a God who wants to show himself to us. It's the same God that in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were the ones that were hiding from him, God goes out into the path knowing exactly where they are and saying, Adam, where are you? God is always seeking us out. He's always looking to reveal himself to us. Now, he's not always going to reveal all the plans that he has for you. He's not necessarily going to lay out in detail all the bullet points of what he's got for your life for 2022 and, and for the next decade. And, you know, here's my, here's my 10-year plan for you. That's not what God's necessarily going to do. But he is the God who is in the business of revealing himself to you. He wants to reveal his character to you. He wants to reveal to you his faithfulness. He wants to uh, show himself to you so that you know that he's a trustworthy God and that when he says, when he begs for you to put your faith in him, that you know that he's worthy of that faith, he's worthy of that trust because God is in the business of revelation and revealing himself. When I pray to God for myself, when I intercede for others, one of the first things I pray for is God Reveal yourself to us. Let us see you as you are. Show us your character. Show us your purpose. Show us your plan so that we can respond in praise and honor and worship and glory to your name because God is in the business of revealing. He's not in the business of just hiding from us. And so, as I said, we see this this verbiage. He's making known to us his will according to his purpose. He set it forth as a plan. You see, God is a God of planning. He's a God of purpose. He's not just winging it. He's not surprised by the things you and I are surprised by. When you get that pink slip and you never saw it coming, God did. When you get that diagnosis from the doctor and it just shocks you and you don't know what to do, God wasn't shocked. Whatever it is that comes our way, God has a plan. He's got a purpose, and he's in control. F.F. Bruce, the theologian, said, When all the times and seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority have run their course, God's age-long purpose, which he planned in Christ, will attain its full fruition. And that's what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians. See, in the end, all things are going to be restored to their intended function. In the end, all things are going to be restored to their unity by being brought back to the obedience of Jesus Christ. 
we talk about Advent, the, the coming of Christ, we have another coming that we're still looking forward to. We know that Jesus Christ is coming again. He's coming to receive his church to himself. And we know that there's a new heavens and a new earth that's going to uh, be created. And this old earth is going to be destroyed. We know that there's a final judgment. We also know that there's glory for, on, for an eternity for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. But Meanwhile, God continues to reveal himself through, uh, to us through his word, through his work in the Spirit. Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So we see that we have redemption through Jesus Christ. And we see that Jesus came so that we could have reunion with Christ. But also Jesus came so that God's glory could be revealed. Christ's glory could be revealed. Verse 11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Our reason for existence. You want to know what the meaning of life is? I'll tell you, big picture. You have been chosen for the praise of his glory. Whatever it is that's going on in your life, whatever it is that God has decided you are strong enough to handle, it is for the praise of his glory so that you can testify of the goodness of God, so that you can be a man or a woman of faith. I, I just said a phrase I don't really like to say, a man of faith. You know, there's a lot of faith out there. Faith in who? Faith in Jesus Christ, Right? I don't tell people I'm a person of faith. I tell them I believe in Jesus. I walk with Jesus. There's a difference there, you know? Why do we try to water down our witness? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> God works everything out in the fullness of time. Over the years, we see wars, we see terrorism, we see famines, we see apostasy, we see our nation in moral decline. We see some people in militant opposition to fundamental basics that we used to hold dear as a nation. We see marriages that fail and finances that come crashing down. People's witness fails them and relationships fail. We see sicknesses and disease and death. And yet in the midst of it all, God is at work. And in the midst of it all, God is revealing himself to us. And the main reason, the main the main avenue in which God looks to reveal himself to this world around us, guess what? It's through you, me, us, together as the church to be a witness of his glory, to be a witness of his love, to be a witness of the purpose that he gives to us, to testify of the goodness of God regardless of what's going on in our lives. So when it says that we were the first to hope in Christ that we might be to the praise of his glory, I have a question for you, and that is, is God's revelation of himself in your life sufficient 
for the praise of his glory. And that's a question that you have to answer for yourself. Some of us have a very surface kind of relationship with God. Yeah, I believe in God. I believe in the big man upstairs. I believe that everything's going to work out. You know, it's a very surface kind of relationship. Some of us have a deeper walk with God. Maybe some of us come to church every week, but maybe that's the only time when we really focus on the Lord. Otherwise, we're busy with other things during the week. But every Sunday morning, that's our time with God. And, and I'm not doubting your salvation. That's not my point. But my, my, my question is, just how deep does the revelation of God in your life go, my friends? Is it deep enough that he gets the praise to his glory in your life no matter what's going on? That you're able to trust in him as your healer even when you don't see him as your healer or even when you don't see him healing you, I should say. You're able to trust in him as your provider even when you don't know how rent or mortgage is going to get paid next month. What is God's revelation in your life? Are you receiving the type of revelation that he wants to pour out in your life? Again, he's not a God who loves to play hide-and-seek. He's, he's the kind, you know, I used to play hide-and-seek with my kids when they were younger. The way that we'd play hide-and-seek is I'd find, I'd find a really good hiding place, but then they, they wouldn't be able to find me. And so then you, you have to start doing things, right? Because you want to be found as a, as a parent, right? And so they start walking by you, and you're like... <coughs> Or just, you know, I, I, I'm kind of weird. You just make noises. You know, like, burp, burp. <laughs> yeah, what, what's that, you know? Where is that coming from, you know? Because I want to give them clues. Why? Because I want them to find me. And then when they find me, we give each other high five, hug, whatever, you know. It's a wonderful thing to be found. God, our Father, wants to be found by you. If he's playing hide and seek, he's hiding in the most obvious of places. He's, he's behind the curtains with his arms sticking out and his feet down below. So, you know, he wants you to find him. If we seek him, we will find him. That's what the Bible tells us. God wants you to abide in him. Not just allow him to be a part of your life, but to abide in him, live in him. And he wants his word to abide in you. It becomes a fabric, of, in the very fabric of who you are, the very uh, essence of your being. It's all about Jesus. You're not just thinking about him as an afterthought. He's the first thought. With everything that you do, all the plans that you make, all the, all the uh, uh, plans that you make in the future and in the here and now. And this kind of, of revelation only comes through constant contact with the Father through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. There's a uh, British pastor by the name of Frank Borum, and he recounted a time when a minister visited his home in New Zealand, and Borum was young and, and, and inexperienced, and so he sought the counsel of his guests, and he said one morning they were sitting out on the veranda just looking at a beautiful sunrise, and he asked the minister, can a man be sure that in the hour of perplexity he will be rightly led by God? Can he feel secure against making a false step? And this older, wiser, more experienced pastor responded, I am certain of it. And he went on to say, if he will, but give God time. As long as you live, the older minister said, remember that. Give 
God time. I'd like to ask if you'd please stand with me this morning. So we read one more scripture, Romans chapter 8. Many of you know it well. Verse 28 says, And we know, we know, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, we quote that first part, and sometimes we misquote it often. Well, I just believe everything's going to work together. Well, there are a couple of provisions there. All things work together for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. All things are working for good, if that's you. What is good? Good is as God defines it. He wants you to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And whatever hardship you might be experiencing or whatever lag that you may be experiencing in in seeing God's hand at work in your life, it's all there for a purpose. It's all working to conform you, to make you reflect the character of Jesus Christ. He's got a plan. You don't have to understand it. I don't have to understand it. We just need to trust that the same God who worked during the silent years toward the salvation of the world is at work in your life today. I don't know all of what you're working through in life. I don't have all the answers. To us, a lot of times, life is just confusing. And for a lot of us, we, like the Israelites during those silent years, we're crying out, how long, O Lord? You might be crying out, how long, O Lord? Here's what I do know. God has a purpose for you. He has a plan for you. And if you wait on him, if you walk with him, trusting him every step of the way, that plan is going to come to fruition because he loves you. And he has good plans for your life. Plans to make you stronger plans to make you more like Jesus. The plan is that you and I would be to the praise of his glory. If we can learn to trust God and praise him during these silent years, then when the fullness of time has come and all things are revealed, we can give glory and praise to his name. Amen? I'd like to ask if we could bow our heads and close our eyes because maybe the place that you're at in your life is that you're not really walking with Jesus at all but the same God that's revealed himself to so many of us here today is revealing himself to you right now and everything that's happened in your life until this point has come so that you can make a decision to follow Jesus in the fullness of time. The time is now. I'd like to ask, if you don't know Jesus, but you'd like to know Jesus, if 
you're not living for him, but you want to live for him, would you raise your hand and just to indicate that, yes, pastor, I'm ready. This is my time, and this is the time that God has for me. Anybody here? Maybe you're watching online, maybe live, maybe it's after the fact. The funny thing is God works through time and supersedes time. I want to encourage you, if you don't know Jesus, now is your time. Now is your time. Just commit today to live for him. Some of you this morning are going through some difficult times. I know you are because I've talked to some of you. And some of it's just the law of averages. I mean, come on, it's a human condition, right? Just because we've given our lives to Jesus doesn't mean that we're on easy street from that point on. But God is here for you today. And as we sing this next song with the worship team, as Pastor Dan leads us, I encourage you to just lift up your hands, whether it's a comfortable thing for you or not. You lift up your hand just to say, yes, Lord, here I am. And I'm calling out to you, and I'm going to receive your plan, and I'm going to understand that maybe your plan is different from my plan, but I'm going to worship you. Lord God, I pray that you'd be with each and every one of us here today and help us. Help us to put our faith in you and our trust in you.